Well, I've done something like three dozen or more weddings since I've been a pastor, and uh, no one has picked that particular scripture as one of the readings for the service. Um, We're starting a new series today, just a brief three-week series, because on the church's calendar, the year ends uh, in three weeks. Um, The first Sunday of Advent is the beginning of the new year, and that's November 27th. And the church, what we do is we try to portray both in word and color and uh, dramatic, um, even acting a little bit, the story of God every year using the calendar. And that will start again with Advent and considering Christ's second and then his first coming. Um, But we're finishing up the year. And as I looked at the lectionary and the readings prescribed from Luke's gospel, they were very kingdom oriented. This text and next week and the one after that, um, a picture of God's kingdom. So I titled it, Thy Kingdom Come, or The Kingdom Come. Uh, And I'm stealing that right from the Lord's Prayer. And um, The subtitle is The Future and Its Coming Days. And I wonder this question, when we pray, thy kingdom come, what do we actually expect is going to happen? What is, what are we hoping for? What are we asking for? Hopefully today and the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to pray that a little bit more specifically with some intentionality and expectation of what it will mean. Um, the text is going to be that Luke passage. So if you want to turn from, to the gospel, go to Luke 20. And this text is actually not about marriage. It's about the resurrection. But it says some things that are very encouraging, I think, about marriage. And it uses marriage as a way to teach about God's kingdom. It should inspire hope. And it will point to something that is even better than the best of what marriage has to offer. As you get there, I need to do a little bit of teaching before I can shift into preaching. I need to explain a couple of difficult things that are, they seem foreign to us. One is this idea of what is known as leveret marriage. It comes from Moses speaking to the people of God in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 25.5 if you want to read up on it. But it was a very merciful provision in a time when widows were particularly vulnerable. And if a, a woman, a young woman was married and had not had children yet, and her husband was to die, and he had a brother that was unmarried, the brother was supposed to marry her to provide offspring for her and to protect her. And I know that flies in the face of our contemporary views of marriage. We see marriage, I think, very shallowly as about self-fulfillment, and there's a much bigger picture to the purpose of marriage. One was security, and another was lineage. It was about offspring and progeny and passing along your family line to occupy the land that God had provided for ancient Israel. So if this woman, her husband died and she didn't have any kids and she didn't marry again, one, she was vulnerable in that society because she had very few ways to make money. And two, she, her family would lose the land. The promise that was given, it, it wouldn't be passed down through the generations like God intended it to. So he came up with that idea. Now, like I said, the passage isn't about marriage, but the Sadducees used that passage from Moses to try to trick Jesus, to trip him up. So let me explain to you who the Sadducees are. They are one of several Jewish parties, sects within the party of, the, of Judaism. There, there were the Pharisees that we hear about a lot, which you might call the moral conservatives, and the Sadducees were the wealthy liberals. They did not uh, uh, receive the whole 
Old Testament. They only read the first five books. They call it the book of Moses, or the Pentateuch is the technical term. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't read the prophets. They didn't read the wisdom literature. They just rejected all of that. And they were rich. They were descended from the Levites. So they were the rich, socially liberal, priestly class who only read the first five books of the Bible. And then the Pharisees, of course, had this this very well-developed oral code as to how to, uh, to observe the entire Old Testament. And they were trying to achieve righteousness through their own behavior and actions. So Pharisees and Sadducees. So understand that. And I think it's interesting that if you read in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul finds himself on trial in Jerusalem and his accusers are a mixed bag of both of those groups. And when he realizes these aren't all Pharisees, some are Sadducees, he sees an opening to cause confusion. So he says in front of his accusers, brothers, I too am a Pharisee and I am on trial because of my belief in the resurrection. And instantly a fight starts. The Sadducees guffaw and then the Pharisees are like, no, he's right. And they're like, wait, we're defending the person we're accusing. And it starts this confusion. And what it says in Acts 23 is it says, for the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe that they were eternal. Like many people today, they thought when they die, that's it. You just cease to exist. There's nothing beyond it. Which, of course, means this world doesn't matter. It means your life is useless. It doesn't give any excuse for the existence of beauty or these transcendent things we experience, or what's the purpose of love if when you die, nothing happens? Right? There are some real problems with that theology, and Jesus takes it head on. So the third thing I want to explain before I actually preach the text is the context here. This passage is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, as well as Luke that we just read. And they, uh, in Matthew and Mark, it's a little bit more explicit. Jesus is finally done playing games, and he shoots straight between the eyes. He says to them in Matthew and Mark, you guys are wrong, He says that twice. You are wrong because you don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. So he deals with the fact that they only have received the first five books of the Old Testament, not the rest of it. He deals with, he will get to the angels in here. He deals with that. He deals with the resurrection. And he says, you have no vision for God's power of what he's going to do beyond this life. So that's the context. And we're in the greatest battle of wits ever. I gave Jesus praise this morning for being the smartest man to have ever lived. I think it's important to recognize that because if I was to quiz you without having said that and said, who's the smartest man to ever live, even within the church, a lot of us won't instantly think Jesus. You know, we throw some other name out there, but we wouldn't instantly think Jesus, but he is. And they were trying to trip him up in his words. All of the people were. And this happens in the last week of his life. So he's come into the temple and he judged the fact that it wasn't a place of prayer, but it was a place of selling and buying. And he overturned their tables and they were mad, of course. And they said, who gives you the authority to do this? And the battle of wits begins right there. He turns to them and says, I have a question for you first. John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or from man? And they they couldn't answer it because if they said from man, all the people would rebel and riot because they all thought he was a prophet. And if they said from God, then... He would say, well, why don't you listen to what he said? Because he said, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he pointed to me. So they were stuck on that. So they said, I don't know. And he said, well, then I won't tell you what authority by which I do this. 
And it goes back and forth. And the Pharisees, in one of these instances, challenge him with the idea of paying taxes. Okay, smart teacher. You know, they, of course, they, they, they got somebody else to go ask the question that looked innocent enough. Good rabbi, is it appropriate for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And you know the answer. He says, give me a coin whose face is on it. Give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they all marvel and amaze and are amazed. So then the Sadducees watch the Pharisees go down that way and they go, okay, I got one. And they go to him and we get to this text and they challenge him with this. So this context, this this, the context here is a battle of wits back and forth, and Jesus is about to deal with their ignorance, and he's going to do it directly. So he says, all right, you guys, Moses, you believe in Moses? Good idea. Let's look at Moses. And he says, remember the passage about the burning bush? Now, they didn't have, they didn't have Bibles in their hands like we do, and they didn't have the verse markings that we do. So he didn't say, get your pew Bible and turn to Exodus 3.5. He said, Remember the story of the burning bush? And he was talking about when God came and called Moses and the bush was literally on fire but not being consumed. And God reveals himself to Moses. And in that passage, he says, uh, I'm reading from Exodus 3, 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then a little bit later, he says it again in verse 15. He says, um, God also says to, said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Forever this is my name. Not just while Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. Forever, because they actually are still alive. And Jesus uses that as his argument from Moses that they believe in. Now, before I go further, let me ask you this question. Personally, are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of death for yourself? Statistically speaking, it is the number two greatest fear of humans. Do you know what number one is? That's what I'm doing right now. It's public speaking. <laughs> and I can tell you it's, it can be terrifying. But most people are very much afraid of dying, even in the church. And I think what Jesus is teaching here should encourage us not only to not be afraid of it, but to eagerly anticipate it, to look forward to it, because it's going to be so incredible what happens. Now, yes, I, I admit, I, nobody wants pain. We don't want to suffer. And we, and we, we really do. We love uh, people in our lives, and there are things about this life that are really good. And the idea of letting those go temporarily is a little frightening and unnerving. But this passage should replace fear with hope as we understand what God intends for the future. As we look ahead and say, thy kingdom come, intentionally expecting this to happen. But death is frightening. We talked about taxes last week. Last week. We talked about death this week. It's the two inevitables. Death is coming to all of us. And I want us to die well and die in hope with eager expectation. The Apostle Paul said, I long to go and be with the Lord, but for your sake, I'm glad that I'm here, right? He was ready to go be with Jesus right there, but he knew that there was work to be done in this life that had eternal consequences, so the apostle was glad to remain so he could proclaim the goodness to those people and win their hearts and give them hope for the future as well. But Paul was secure in what was going to happen, and he was ready for it. He was eager to go into glory with Jesus because he had 
some of the picture of what was to be expected. Only some, though. He does say no mind can conceive what God has in store for those who love him. I mean, it, it is beyond our finite ability right now to even really conceptualize it. But Jesus wants us to not be ignorant about it as well, which is why he gives us this passage. So back to Luke 20 a little bit. Now, it's okay in this life to not be satisfied. It is okay in this life to get to the end of your life and have unfulfilled ambitions. You don't have to finish your bucket list. This life is not all there is. I think about that passage um, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55. He says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? The rhetorical question implies that if we put all our hopes on the things of this life, they will not satisfy us. At best, they can temporarily do so. And even the psalm we prayed earlier pointed to the fact that for most people, their lot is in this life. And when that ends, that's all they've got. But for those who know the Lord, this isn't it. There is something that is even better. And he invites us in that, in Isaiah 55, he invites us to be satisfied with his face and nothing short of that. Come and have more. Come and buy and eat the true wine, the true bread, the eternal stuff. The Lord is where our satisfaction will be and nothing else can measure up. So it is okay in this life to not pursue satisfaction. It's all right because we will eventually be satisfied. This life has a purpose for us and it is to prepare us for what's coming. Now, I want to look at two things, Moses and marriage. So the, the Moses thing. So his name is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. It's present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I will be or not I was. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but fortunately those guys passed away, so I need a new name. That's not what he's saying. And if they were not alive, it would be creepy. The English class that my daughter's in this year is reading very dark literature, and they read a short story recently called A Rose for Emily. And if you haven't read it, I'm going to give the ending away, but you've had many years to read it, so too bad. The story is very short, and it ends with a, a very austere widow whose husband mysteriously died, and they find out when she dies that she actually kept his body in the bed with his head on the pillow, and she would occasionally go in there and sort of snuggle with him, but he was dead and decaying, and there was a smell, and it's very dark and gross. It's creepy. It's a creepy story. The thought of being still somehow connected to something that is dead. And God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those guys aren't dead. I mean, they're dead from this life, but they are alive eternally. Or think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John and goes up there. And who does he meet with? The Lord comes, the God the Father comes in a cloud, but then Moses and Elijah are there speaking with him. Why? because they're not dead. They're still serving the Lord. This life for them has ended, but that life continues. The resurrection is coming. We are eternal beings. And God's desire is to be known by his relationship, his covenant relationship with people. We struggle with that a little bit. Um, I, you know, if, if we're known by somebody else, we want independence. 
I have, a, I have one brother, he's younger than me by two years, so two grades in school, and my brother's about six times smarter than me and um, was valedictorian and all that kind of stuff and has an advanced Ivy League degree and he's doctor and all that stuff. And, and I would go back occasionally and visit my high school teachers and they would say, oh yeah, you're Eric's brother. <laughs> and I'd say, no, I came first. He, he's, he's Mike's brother. And it irritated me. But of course, in my role at the church here, I feel bad because my wife gets, oh, you're Mike's wife, or Mrs. Senior Pastor, or whatever it is. And I understand, like, we don't like that. We want to be known for ourselves, but not with the Lord. The Lord is delighted to be known by his covenant relationships. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that will be my name forever. Forever, because of the community, because of the, the covenant that God has with his people. It's about belonging. And so, Jesus goes right to Moses and says, see, the resurrection is for real. If, if Jesus, uh, because God uses that present tense, it means that those people are still alive. Not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. All right, now marriage. The part that causes us to be a little uneasy about this. Like, what does this mean for marriage? Well, marriage is not needed for security in the future because we're secure in the Lord. All of our needs are met. There's no hardship, famine. There's no need to work for our living. None of that stuff. Um, It's not needed for offspring because we're now eternal. So we don't need to populate the land with the next generation like we do here. So Jesus says, we will be like the angels in that regard. Angels are not reproducing. They don't need to be married to have offspring. And they're eternal beings. And we will be eternal beings and we will not need the security, because we'll have it in the Lord. We don't need to be married to protect and provide. And you, you, you think about this for a minute, and I'm saying there's, there's no need for marriage, and in your head there's a question, right? Well, there's some aspects of marriage that are really good, that I really like, and what are you saying? Well, get your head out of our culture's erotic category, get out of the bedroom, and think about the blessing of that in marriage. It's about intimacy. It's about feeling connected. It's about a reversal of what happened in the garden. They were naked and they felt ashamed. Now there's no shame. Imagine a sense of being completely known and absolutely accepted. Marriage doesn't end in the sense that those things go away. It's like that with everyone in the kingdom of God. And everyone has a spouse, and that spouse is Jesus. He is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And we experience a kind of connectedness with everyone there that is better than the best that marriage can be in this life. If you have an awesome marriage, thank God for that, but it's not perfect. There is not a perfect marriage in this life. And if you've been hurt, thank God as well, because there will be a perfected relationship. Or if you long to be married and you're not, whatever it might be, that will all be resolved in the coming days. The the best of marriage will be present for all of us. And that picture is, we can't quite conceive it. We really struggle with it because we only know the sinful broken world and the relationships the way that they work here and we have a hard time looking ahead. But what I wanna do is say, look ahead and try, try to imagine that every relationship is better than the best marriage. That's what it's gonna be like. And it's, it is, it's an incredible picture. So here's, what do we do with this? Okay, one, pray the Lord's Prayer expectantly. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Expect that that will happen. 
Pray with excitement for it. Look forward to it. And then replace fear, the number two fear of all humans, replace that with hope. Choose to think about what this will mean for you and don't fall into fear. Let hope arise. It's going to be good. It's going to be better than the best here. There will actually be satisfaction that remains. There will be joy unspeakable. Our mind really can't conceive of what's coming, but we know it's going to be great. And Jesus is explaining this to us in teaching. And remember what he said. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So there is a reunion happening that maybe for a while we have to grieve while we're separated from somebody we love, but there's a reunion coming with them that will be glorious with others who've gone before. I really do look forward to meeting the patriarchs. I think we're actually going to get to do that. And unfortunately, because of artwork and other things, we've sort of disembodied heaven and made it like clouds and sort of Casper the Friendly Ghost or something. We've got this very bad view of what's coming. The resurrection will be bodily. It will be physical. It will be better than the best this world has to offer. Expect more, not less from it. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. And because of what he's done on the cross for us, he shows us what to expect, what is coming. It's a glorious picture. So I say, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. And let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for your word. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your steadfast commitment to your promises. Thank you for the cross. I thank you that because of that, we can boldly approach you and stand before you and pray and ask and praise. Lord, help us. Father, where we're afraid, lift that fear, replace it with hope. I pray that you'd give us courage. I pray that that courage would shine brightly in this world and that those who are in despair would be given hope as well. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.